All right, howdy, Grace. Todd here. I'm sitting in my uh, living room at home. I wanted to catch you up on the content from Joseph's story from uh, Sunday, December 1st, the Sunday that we missed because of the uh, freezing rain event. I tried <laughs> preaching the sermon um, to an empty room, and it was kind of crappy. So I thought I'd try one more take and uh, just kind of sit and talk you through the content, not try and preach it, but just talk you through some of the parts of Joseph's story that really kind of spoke to me as I prepared the sermon that we missed. So we were um, getting ready to start our new series, What Say You? And the big idea with this series is we're exploring five stories that I hope will change your story this Christmas. Christmas can be, you know, a real difficult time for people. And I wanted to give you some encouragement from the Christmas story. Um, maybe a reminder that uh, it's going to be okay. And as always, you know, I believe that Jesus' story is the seminal story of human experience. And the closer we can get to embracing <clears throat> all of who Jesus is and what he did, uh, the closer we can get to living life as it's meant to be. So I hope over this Advent season uh, to encourage you with these five stories. So the first story was intended to be Joseph's story. I called the sermon Man of Few Words. And for my hook, I was thinking about things that we say and do. And so I wrote a little sequence uh, about when Mickey and I are going out on a date and she selects a bunch of outfits and wants my opinion. It's pretty funny sometimes. I'll come into the room and she'll have, you know, five or six outfits that she's kind of <laughs> blown through unhappily. And she's fine. And I'm out. <laughs> as soon as I see that, I go, oh, no, this is, this is going to be a problem. Um, so I, you know, brace myself and then ask her, or she asks me, she's like, so this is like the big reveal, right? She comes out of the bathroom. Do you like this outfit? And, um, I never know really what to say. All right. Sometimes I love the outfit and, uh, sometimes I don't. So how do you tell her? Right. I've been married 23 years. And the problem with me is no matter what I say, she knows what I'm thinking. So it's a bit of a tough spot. Uh, I love your outfit. You look great. Um, and if there's any hesitation, she can tell. Um, that's just one example, right, of being put in a situation where you don't know what to say and you sometimes say the wrong thing. I also often do the wrong thing. Um, I often experience this. I talk about this sometimes from the pulpit in traffic. You know, I'll just get upset because somebody cuts me off or I get upset if somebody's driving too slow. I have to really work at it because <laughs> I often say I'm like a lightning rod. Like if God is going to use traffic as an opportunity to humble somebody, I am uh, definitely a likely candidate to be humbled that way. So I typically drive slow and typically do everything I can to uh, practice self-control, but I do have those, you know, kind of negative thoughts and reactions. Back in the day, coaching football, I got so angry one time, I was just shouting at the refs and they gave me a warning like they were going to, you know, flag me if I kept at it. And so I didn't really say anything except I kind of sarcastically thanked them. Thanks for a great call, ref. And they flagged me for sarcasm. <laughs> I didn't even know if that was possible. I used to go to sleep in staff meetings when I was a youth pastor because I was so bored. And uh, it definitely wasn't the right thing to do, to ever do the wrong thing. What's cool about Joseph's story is that um, he did two things. He took 
right action and he made right confession. So my hope here was to show you the way in which he took right action and the way in which he made right confession uh, in the hopes that those two key activities on his part might inspire you uh, to do the same. The big idea for this series, What Say You?, is that if you say the right thing about Jesus, it can change your life. Um, put another way, how you respond to Jesus changes everything. And I really do believe that. I really believe that the Jesus question is kind of the central question of the human experience. I mean, I say this all the time, right? If, if the story is not true, then who cares? It doesn't matter at all. Um, but if the story is true, if Jesus, you know, is real, if he was who he says he was, then, you know, figuring out who he is and how you're going to respond to that is the question of your existence. How you respond to Jesus um, really changes everything. So I want you to think about that. Think about the ways in which you've been responding to Jesus um, and maybe about how you're going to respond to Jesus this year. <clears throat> so here's the passage. This is um, Matthew 1. Uh, 18 to 25. I'm reading it out of the uh, English Standard Version. Maybe you can read along if you want. Here we are. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to reveal what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So this is um, Joseph's story. Joseph was a home builder. We often call him a carpenter, but um, he's more likely a home builder. Living in Nazareth. Um, I mentioned this last week from the pulpit, but Nazareth was really nowheresville. Uh, in Jesus' time, it was, it's assumed, archaeologists assume that it was probably about 500 people. There's just one public bath, really a nondescript town. I was thinking as I wrote this about poor Joseph, the home builder in a town of 500 with houses made of stone uh, that doesn't equal a lot of repeat business so he's probably a jack-of-all-trades right he could probably you know do woodworking if you need it cut stone if you need it work on the uh, rushes on your roof if you need it he's living really in the middle of nowhere and this is a big change from uh, where he should have been living there's actually no extra biblical references to the city of Nazareth until about 200 AD that's how insignificant uh, town it was. And it, it struck me as I was writing this that uh, Jesus' story kind of kicks off in the middle of nowhere. And this was a reminder to me that Christianity is not in, intended to be primarily impressive. right? Like if God had wanted to kick it off somewhere impressive, he easily could have done so. He could have had Jesus born in a king's palace. He could have, could have done anything he wanted. But he chose to uh, have his son um, delivered <clears throat> through the medium of Joseph and Mary's inconsequential marriage in this inconsequential town, in this inconsequential city. So, you know, maybe that's license for us to stop worrying about being so impressive. I know I always feel the pressure to be impressive. You know, when I'm preaching, I'm trying to do a good job. When I'm communicating with people, I'm trying to do a good job. 
I'm always hoping to make a good impression. It's hard, right, in our culture? Everyone's kind of on display all the time. So there's maybe a permission there for you to um, stop trying to be so impressive all the time. Because Joseph's life certainly wasn't. It's interesting, verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place. These two minor words, took place, like, <laughs> you wouldn't think that really means anything. But as I was prepping this, it really struck me that took place means what it says. It took place. Like, this is real history. This story actually happened. And uh, Joseph is stuck in the middle of a pretty non-inspiring story. Um, he's really a minor character. It doesn't really figure very heavily in Jesus' story. Um, he kind of disappears from the scene while Jesus is still a young boy. And uh, most scholars think that's because he died while Jesus was still pretty young. So I just wanted to maybe encourage you and encourage me if you feel sometimes like you're stuck in the middle of a non-awesome story, <laughs> that you're in good company, right? Jesus' uh, Jesus's adopted father, Joseph, was living a pretty non-remarkable story. Um, it's interesting, too, that his story, this is often the case, right? I, I mention this frequently, but his life gets worse before it gets better. Uh, verse 18, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Mary and Joseph were betrothed. This is like one step past engagement. So you can engage first. These were arranged marriages. The families would usually set it up. And then once you got to betrothal, there would be um, like an official contract kind of where the families would agree and you're, you're technically now bound to one another. It's betrothal. But you haven't been married yet. You haven't had sex yet. Um, so you're not fully man and wife, but you are about as close as it gets. So they're still betrothed. They haven't actually um, been married they haven't actually consummated the marriage and so it's in that very serious contractual phase that they find out that she's pregnant and um, I don't know if you've ever been betrayed I remember being betrayed by a girlfriend in my teenage years so it's just awful um, I imagine if that's you in your adult years you've suffered betrayal how much more horrible that is than you know the garden variety teenage betrayal that we all suffered I just imagine I was just thinking about that first moment when she told him she was pregnant and what might have been kind of flashing through his mind, you know, like I'm married to a hussy, you know, or I'm betrothed to a hussy, like, who is this woman? I thought you were faithful, and now you've done me wrong. And this made me wonder what you're going to do when disaster strikes, right? We all know that disaster strikes, it has this habit of showing up when we least expect it. Life isn't easy, you know. Nikki and I and our family are just digesting the death of her father last weekend, uh, suddenly, after suffering a stroke, and... Um, I've been thinking a lot, actually, about the Shawshank Redemption. don't know if you've seen that movie, but if you haven't, I highly recommend it. It's a classic. And Andy Dufresne, who's the central character in the movie, he's imprisoned for murdering his wife, and he didn't kill her. And the story is him trying to escape from jail because he'll never get a free tri a fair trial. And uh, there's a powerful sequence where he talks about bad luck. He talks about it as kind of hovering around over the human story, looking on, looking for someone to land on, and it just kind of randomly lands on you from time to time. I'm not quite as fatalistic as that, but you know it does feel sometimes like uh, trouble just shows up, and trouble definitely shows up here for Joseph. And so I wanted to ask you, um, what are you going to say when trouble shows up in your life? You know, Mary would have told Joseph for sure the Holy Spirit did this, right? We see in the story from Mary's perspective, right, the angel uh, when he appears to her. Obviously, it's the Holy Spirit um, that's involved, but I mean that'd be pretty. <clears throat> tough sell, right, for her to tell Joseph, Don't, it wasn't me, it was the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm quite sure he didn't believe her at first. 
So how are you going to respond when disaster strikes? I mean, honestly, if, if I'm being really honest, I would, I'm pretty sure I'd stew a little, you know, I'd be troubled by this. I had a sleepless night a couple weeks ago. Um, Nick and I got in a bit of an argument and, uh, I was so upset that I literally, I was awake all night, couldn't sleep all night. And, uh, next day was okay. Um, I was fine. We figured it out, but I wonder if that's the kind of night Joseph was having. Just a sleepless night. Here's what he's dealing with. This is um, verses 19 through 20. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So he's thinking about it. He doesn't know what to do. He's a just man. He's a good man, a kind man. He doesn't want to um, put her to public shame. That would have meant uh, execution by stoning. Jewish law would have required that for a woman who was found to be pregnant outside of marriage would have dragged her outside of the town and stoned her to death. So he doesn't want to do that. It's a pretty primitive time, hey? Like, wow. <laughs> so different from our world today. Doesn't want this to happen to her. So he's trying to figure out a way to put her away quietly. It's a dilemma, right? He's having a dark night of the soul. Sleepless night. Doesn't want her stoned to death. But as he considered these things, so he's brooding. In fact, in the original language there, uh, considered literally means brooding as he was brooding over these things. The fact that he's brooding, the fact that he's kind of tormented by this, um, to me, is evidence that he doesn't believe her. Right? Because if he believed her right away, um, he wouldn't have had any difficulty with it. But he clearly doesn't believe her. He's clearly um, struggling with it. He's brooding. He's having a sleepless night. <clears throat> Can't sleep. And this is comforting to me because, uh, you know, I've had sleepless nights. I'm sure you have also. And if you ever have one of those sleepless nights... Uh, or you've got so much trouble that it's tormenting you, you're brooding over it. Just remember our friend Joseph. Remember that uh, even members of God's family find themselves with uh, dark nights of the soul. It's fun, you know, the Jesus story. I love the Jesus story so much because we see all through it, in the Jewish scriptures and the Christian scriptures, we see God stepping in time and time and time again. Heaven has a habit of stepping in. That's what happens in verse 20 through 21. So Joseph was thinking about it as he considered these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So as he's thinking about it, middle of the night, can't sleep, an angel shows up in a dream and uh, helps him through it. I just wanted to remind you that the angel shows up uh, in the dream in the middle of the dark night of the soul. Uh, it's in dark nights of the soul that heaven shows up. I know that you dread dark nights of the soul. Nobody wants to suffer. Um, but it's in suffering that uh, heaven shows up. So I just wanted to encourage you, next time you find yourself in the dark, um, start watching for the light to show up. <laughs> That's good. That'll preach good right there. Next time I find myself in the dark, I'm going to uh, start watching for the light. A couple other things you can watch for when heaven shows up. So I, I found some signposts here in the text, um, just from like what the angel said to Joseph. He reminds him who he is. He calls him son of David. Um, did you know that Joseph was from the kingly line? Like directly descended from King David. How depressing would that have been for him, you know, eking out a living as a part-time home builder in a town of 500 people when he should have been growing up in the king's palace in Jerusalem. So he reminds him who he is, <clears throat> tells him not to be afraid, says do not fear. He tells him the truth, um, even if it's impossibly true. 
that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's an impossibility. I don't know the last time uh, you had an angel explain the truth to you. Uh, and I don't know the last time you experienced that kind of really impossible truth. Like, how could this possibly be true? Uh, but that's what it's doing. Heaven is telling him the truth, even if it's impossible. Um, it tells him the future. I like that. Because I would like someone to tell me the future. She will bear a son. And then it tells him what to do. And you shall call his name Jesus. That sounds a lot like heaven to me. Right? <laughs> I don't often get told the future. But I am often told what to do. It tells him what to do. Um, and it tells him what really matters. He will save his people from their sins. We, uh, we can get pretty glib about Christianity, right? We think that it's about um, our own personal journey, our own personal awakening, our own personal actualization. And that's true. You know, like there's... There's parts of that to the Christian experience, but um, you know it's not popular to talk about the fact that sin is real and God is holy. And if uh, you don't find a way to deal with your sin, you're going to have a real problem when you stand before God someday, because He's holy. He can't tolerate sin. He has to punish it. Punish it. His justice requires it. Sin's a real problem, which is why Jesus is so good, because He comes to save His people from their sins. So, like. Next time you find yourself in a situation where you are feeling like, I don't know who I am, uh, just remember what heaven said to Joseph. You're descended from a line of kings. I love this part of the Christmas story <clears throat> because in Jesus, you have been adopted into the story of God and his people. And so um, because you are Jesus' sister or Jesus' brother now, you are part of his family line so <laughs> the whole, you know, the poetic reference, calling Joseph by his name, son of David, you know, reminding him of his kingly lineage. Um, it's my pleasure to remind you of yours. You are descended from the line of kings. You might be tempted to say, you know, I'm afraid you might find yourself in a situation <clears throat> this month where you're afraid. I love that heaven says, do not fear. Uh, you might not know what true, what's true. Heaven says, here, let me show you. You know, I'll show you what's true. Do you take your cues from heaven when it comes to objective truth? I think about that, about how much noise there is in my life, how so often I take my cues from other things. What's true about my financial situation? What's true about my family situation? What's true about my relationship with Nikki? What's true about my identity as a person? What's true about my perception of success or failure. Um, heaven is the ultimate arbiter of what's true. Hopefully that's very encouraging for you. Like, I don't think you get to make the final call, right? I think heaven does. You may not know what's going to happen, <clears throat> but heaven's always known. She's going to bear a son. If you don't know what to do, sometimes heaven tells you. You shall call his name Jesus. I want to invite you to think about that, like to, to wait on heaven to show you the next step. And if you don't know how to proceed, um, I want to remind you that heaven will sometimes tell you what really matters. If you sit and listen, you know, if you, if you give yourself space to hear the Lord, whether that means just sitting quietly in your room, spending some time in your Bible, and then reflecting on it, listening to Jesus, maybe just listening in the worship context at church, just kind of opening yourself up to feel um, what he's saying. Time and time again, I've experienced this where the Spirit of God rushes in and kind of points out to me what really matters. You almost always know, right? Like, <laughs> you just ask the question, like, what, what should I do, Lord? Would you please?
please guide me here. And almost always, the Lord will step in and, and help you out. So um, there's an aspect here that I wanted to kind of transition to here. I've been telling you all these good things, right? All these things that heaven's going to do. Remind you you're from the line of kings. Tell you not to be afraid. Show you what's going to happen. Remind you that it knows what's going on. Showing you the next step. Reminding you it really matters. It's a bit of a tall order, right? Like it sounds like, wow, that's really good. I find it hard to believe because my life kind of sucks. Um, in the text here, we get a reminder that this is a very old story. Um, and it's a prophetic story, right? The prophets prophesied this. Um, that connection is made in verse 22 through 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a direct quote out of um, <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7 uh, contains a sequence where the prophet Isaiah is rebuking King Ahaz. This is happening around 733 BC. He's rebuking Ahaz because Ahaz has um, solicited the help of the kingdom of Assyria um, in some military conflicts that he was involved in. And Isaiah, um, on God's behalf, is saying, that's wrong. You shouldn't have done that. You should have not have trusted in these foreign armies to save you, but you should have put your trust in God. So it's almost like a, a tongue-in-cheek thing, like what Isaiah is saying to Ahaz is, you think you need the Assyrians, what you really need is a little more God with us. And that's so true, right, for us? Isn't that true for you and me? You know, we think we need this solution, that solution, this solution, that solution. What we really need is Emmanuel. Um, this is beautiful, right? This is why this is a Christmas message. We need God with us. Put another way, we need the Jesus of Christmas. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the original context for that is Isaiah 7, 14. So Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, and then it's echoed in Matthew 1, 23. You may find yourself in a conversation over Christmas with like a friend or a family member who doesn't believe the Jesus story. And this is a popular one for them to poke at. Obviously, the virgin birth is seems impossible. Like, how could that ever happen? And uh, you may have someone say to you, well, you know, Christians made up that whole virgin birth thing. The behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son just means behold, a girl shall conceive and bear a son. Well, the whole virgin birth thing was made up by Christians after the fact. And that's actually not true. Um, the Septuagint is the Greek um, version of the Old Testament. So it's the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures. And um, the translators who translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek um, did so 200 years before the birth of Jesus. So the translators of the Septuagint were pre-Christian. And um, interestingly, they chose the word parthenos, P-A-R-T-H-E-N-O-S, parthenos. They chose that word uh, for the Hebrew word alma, which is young girl. But in the context in the Hebrew, it's very clear. Like when you read it in the Hebrew, you can see that it means a virgin. Um, and so the pre-Christian translators of the Septuagint used a word parthenos, which specifically in Greek means virgin, to correctly translate the uh, Hebrew word alma. And they did this 200 years before the birth of Christ. So, one, it wasn't Christian translators. Two, it was translated specifically Parthenos, which means virgin, uh, 200 years before the birth of Jesus. So, that's pretty cool. I make that point, hopefully, to encourage you. Um, you know, when you have doubts come up, maybe someone around you will uh, bring up doubts when it comes to the Jesus story. Maybe you got voices in your own head um, bringing up doubts. What lies beneath those doubts, whether they're coming at you from somebody else or whether they're coming at you from your own mind, is the urge to save yourself, right? Like, because someone thinks you're a fool for believing in God, 
So they care about you. They want you to save yourself, right? Because there is no God. So you trusting in a God who doesn't exist to save you is a waste of your time. So they think they're being kind to you and helping you and helping to, you know, dissuade you from your false beliefs. Um, your own mind might be saying, you know, save yourself, give up. But the story of Christmas says, wait for Emmanuel. This is the, the hard part of Christian faith, um, trusting God, waiting for him to come through. But that's the story of Christmas. And as a Bible-preaching pastor who loves you, that's my hope. I really want to inspire you this Christmas to wait for Emmanuel. It's also beautiful um, that the story of Christmas uh, is a wake-up call. That's what happens uh, here for Joseph, verse 24 and 25, as we kind of wrap this up. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, so didn't sleep with her until she had given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. So it's a wake-up call, right? When Joseph awoke from sleep, I love that he woke up. The whole concept of waking up is deeply embedded in the biblical story. Uh, a couple quotes for you here out of Isaiah and Ephesians. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Arise, shine, for thy light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. These are all quotes from Handel's Messiah, which I just love. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So that's kind of a mashup of Isaiah 52, Isaiah 60, and Ephesians 5. Um, simply put, Christmas says, wake up. So uh, I want to invite you this Christmas to wake up. Wake up from your season of doubt. Wake up from your season of pain. Wake up from your season of suffering. Wake up from your dead-end life and embrace the light of Christ. Embrace the new life that has come. Uh, and part of that um, involves saying and doing the right thing. So here we get to the meat of the sermon, right? The two key points. So verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. So I love that Joseph doesn't really say much, right? He's a man of few words, but he speaks with his actions. He does the right thing. I want to be that same kind of person. Uh, I want to inspire you to be that same kind of person, somebody who puts their money where their mouth is. You know, we don't need great soliloquies. We need Christians who do great things. So uh, what say you? I hope that you'll be learning to speak with your actions this year. I hope the same thing for me. Even when it costs you something, right? Like the love of God, the love of neighbor often means uh, self-sacrifice. And uh, my goal <clears throat> in 2020 is to love God better and love people better, to do the right thing more often. What say you? Verse 25, and he called his name Jesus. It's beautiful, right? In Hebrew, Jesus is Yeshua, Savior. Joseph called his name Savior, and I'm hoping that you will too. Um, this, of course, leads to the great bedrock question, right? Who is Jesus to you? Um, I've been using this phrase a bit in my preaching lately. Uh, kind of struck me as a pretty, pretty nice way to spin it. You know, um, I think a lot of people think that Jesus is some mythological religious construct invented by conservatives as a mechanism of control. Um, so is that what you think about Jesus, like at the, at the root? Or is he the savior of the whole world, including you? I'm actually working on next week's sermon right now, and a point occurred to me uh, when discussing say, salvation. <clears throat> is that um, salvation isn't really exciting until you realize that you need to be saved. And uh, so many of us in our affluence and our highly organized lives um, don't have much of a awareness of our need for salvation. Of course, you know, until disaster strikes. So let me tell you, my family's feeling the need for salvation acutely right now. It's funny, there's a ripple effect. Nikki's dad dying has had this ripple effect through her 
extended family. It's remarkable to see kind of the the spiritual searching that uh, comes right to the surface in a moment like this. I need to be saved. I think you do too. I think our world does too. That's why we're building a church together, by the way, so that more and more people can uh, taste and see that the Lord is good, so that more and more people can find the harbor of their soul's longing. So here's the big idea. If you want the story of Christmas to change your story this year, step one, copy, Jesus, copy Joseph, the man of few words. Right? Do what Joseph did. And what did Joseph do? He took right action. Okay, He did as the angel told him. He took his wife, even though she was already pregnant. Uh, and he did right confession. So he did right action and right confession. He did the right thing and he said the right thing. He called his name Jesus. He said the right thing about Jesus. He called him Savior. So um, do the right thing and say what you need to say. Um, I finished with a little joke tying it back to how I started the sermon. I was like, you know, next time your wife asks you how she looks, tell her you look great and then take her out for a cheeseburger. Because I am, after all, Todd Candelon, and if you're Todd Candelon, a cheeseburger is always the right answer. Hey, Merry Christmas, y'all. Love you. Can't wait to see you on Sunday. Um, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, coming up. Amazing. Man, did he have some incredible things to say about who Jesus was. Okay, thanks for uh, popping in to catch up on Joseph. See you soon.